Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications. Uh, Joining me at the host mic today is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the Museum Programs Representative here. And Chris, uh, we have uh, not one, but two guests actually in person. Uh, That's been kind of a rarity these days. We're doing so much over Zoom and Skype and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. It's uh, great to have that technology, but there's nothing to replace uh, having our our wonderful folks here in person. Uh, Tonight, we have... Two very special guests, uh, two astronauts, uh, Charlie Precord and Hoot Gibson, both uh, joining us here, uh, about to take us on a flight into space. <laughs> or or who knows? Well, yeah, we're not really <laughs> sure where we're heading. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Charlie, Hoot, welcome uh, both of you. And uh, and let me say before we get to too far into it, uh, you know, thank you both uh, for such long-term uh, support of EAA in so many different ways. Charlie serving on the on the board and and who I've seen you fly here so many times and you've been you've been around the organization not forever. Well, none of it, us are that old, but uh, just about. Sometimes it feels like it. I've been a member for 38 years now. That's fantastic. And it's been wonderful. It's been delightful. It's just a great organization all the way around. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. And Charlie, uh, you and I work together remotely uh, every month on right. your column in Sport Aviation Magazine. That's always, always a joy to read and edit and, uh, and help put together. So, so terrific to have you both here. Um, now, starting things off, you both have, uh, you've got similar aviation backgrounds, uh, but uh, of course it's Air Force versus Navy. So I feel like we may yeah. have to separate you two at some point. <laughs> Um, but uh, you both spent uh, spent a lot of time at NASA and served uh, uh, in similar similar roles. In in fact, so um, you start us off with. Uh, I'll tell you what. Why don't we start with how you guys met, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, about what it was like when you were there together, what it was like before and after that kind of thing. Well, yes, I guess I got there first. Well, no doubt about it. I got there first. Uh, 1978, I was in the first space shuttle astronaut selection and interviewed in 1977. And then we were notified January the 16th, 1978. Not that I remember that specifically. but <laughs> So uh, I, t- I had all together 18 years with NASA. And so I remember when Charlie's group came in, that was the 1990 class. Exactly. So that was when I first met Charlie. I don't think I was on that selection board. I don't think I was on your selection board. As I recall, you weren't when I, I remember my interview vividly. Yeah, and okay. That's, that explains why you got... There were a couple got, of Navy guys on there. <laughs> that explains why you got selected, because exactly. I wasn't on the board. <laughs> I do recall a comment when I left the interview room. It was Mike Coates, another Navy guy, said, gee, you know, I'd have thought you might have been Navy the way you went through that interview. And I said, well, thank you very much. I'm just trying to get along, you know. (laughs) It was the beginning of the Air Force-Navy rivalries inside the astronaut office corridors. Oh, it had started long before that. Long before me, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that Charlie was a shoe-in when he interviewed. And uh, sure enough, he got picked up for the 1990 class. And then years later, I got to work with him on a mission. And uh, it was obvious to me why we picked him and why he was such a good choice for us. 
Well, like it was obvious why we picked Hoot to be the first commander of a docking of a shuttle with anything, let alone a Russian space station. Uh, that was a very complicated mission, of course, and first time we'd done it. And it remains one of my greatest memories of being at NASA. Oh, golly, likewise. Me too. Me too. So that was your first mission. Uh, that was the mission together that was the first Mir docking. It was, yeah. Wow. 1995, yeah. It was 20 years almost to the day since the Apollo-Soyuz mission, right? Yeah, that's, yeah I was going to add that. We had docked the uh, Apollo capsule with the Soyuz vehicle back in July of 1975. Still in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah, absolutely. A, a brief uh, respite from the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 20 years later, here we come with our quarter million pound space shuttle. Right. And turns out the Russians were nervous. And that was part of the reason why I had to go fly the mission as commander, because I had not picked myself to be the commander. I was chief astronaut at the time. And that's not the job of a leader, is to skim off the good deals for yourself. And so I had picked a really talented crew. Um, we were... We were in a real shortage for pilots, so I had to put Charlie on it. But uh, no, we, he was he was the absolute best choice uh, for pilot for that mission. But I wasn't planning on assigning myself to that mission, and uh, turns out the Russians were nervous. Not people, not many people know this, but we did two dockings with the Apollo Soyuz mission. One of them flown by Deke Slayton, the other one flown by Tom Stafford. One of them. We hit the Soyuz so hard, they nearly broke it. And the Russians never forgot that. And so wow. many, many years later, this will sound self-serving, but the, uh, NASA said, this is really important to the Russians, and it's so important, we're sending our chief astronaut to command the mission. So that's why they had to cross off the name of the, the man that I wanted to do that flight and put me on it. Wow. Well, and how hard is it to train for something like that where, you know, part of the training has to involve the Russian side uh, of it? Is it hard to get, like, the intel and things like that to build, like, for the simulators, things like that? Well, not really. We went over there to, d- to do it. We went over and trained in their simulators and in their, their mirror. They call it a simulator. To us, it would be a mock-up because mm-hmm. it wasn't really electronically active. Uh, oh, wow. But we went over there and trained in Russia twice. The first time for about nine days, and right. then the second time for about seven, seven or eight days, something like that. It was that. really interesting because the top of the mechanism that actually joined the shuttle with the Mir space station was a Russian mechanism that had to be integrated onto a U.S. port in the payload bay. So we spent a lot of time with uh, Dr. Smirnatnikov. Siromyatnikov. Right. Vladimir Siromyatnikov. Vladimir, who actually worked on the Apollo-Soyuz docking mission as well. And so all of his, you know, memory of that engineering effort from Apollo-Soyuz got transferred into what went on the shuttle. And it was just kind of neat to be able to work with our, you know, think about it. Both of us were fighter pilots in the Cold War, and then all of a sudden the wall comes down and we're working with folks that used to be our enemies. And we were collaborating on a technical level like we had never done before. Well, of course, they had to on Paulo Soyuz, but this was a, a full opening, if you will, by comparison. So, And the mechanism, the mechanism was incredible. You'd, you'd look at it and tend to think, you know what, this is a real Rube Goldberg thing. It wasn't. It was a Swiss watch. It was. Is what it was. It was the equivalent of a Swiss watch, four feet in diameter. 
and it was just brilliant the way all the machinery in it worked together. We actually had a Russian avionics panel that had to be put in the aft cockpit area of the shuttle in order to control it. We had Greg Harbaugh was the, the lead for that, that particular part of the operation. Now, this, the mechanism you're mentioning is, is that the, the, on the Russian side, the Russian design docking mechanism? And, and, the, and, and the interface was actually also Russian, but installed on the shuttle. So that both pieces that actually contacted were Russian. Interesting. So it was yeah. it was it was Russian to Russian, yes. and yeah. it was just added on to yeah. the added on to the shuttle. Um, what was the again? As you're saying, it's this is not long after the end of the the Cold War, and and there was still institutional memory of of Apollo Soyuz, and and you know pluses and minuses around that. What was the attitude like of the Russians when you first when you first showed up? Is the did it take a while for things to thaw and warm up? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. They're, they're yes. very, very, very proud people of, and as they should be with their own space program. They've done a lot of things, and and uh, there was a sense of you know we are still equal to you, and and yet the wall had come down, and so their lives were completely upset by that. Um, but when you got to the working level, our counterparts, the crews, it was very, very tight, and and another family, if you will. And that, thank goodness for that, because it made it a lot easier to collaborate on the technical stuff. Yeah, my, my observation had been, just like what Charlie said, the cosmonauts are just like us. They, they like to pull Gs, they like to fly jet fighters, they like to fly in space, and they're, like I say, just like us. Mm -hmm. they, they were really enjoyable to work with, easy to work with. Now, some of their managers were old, died in the wool, USSR. And so they were not necessarily quite as much fun. Exactly. That's really interesting. You you talk about that. Uh, you know, we've had uh, astronauts Frank Borman and Joe Engel on who spent time uh, going to Russia, and the exact same thing at different at different decades. Uh, but they they kind of experienced the same thing where they were kind of in the mindset that these were our enemy, and then you kind of you know find out they're a lot more like you than they thought. And uh, uh, he, Frank had mentioned he still keeps in touch uh, with a couple of those guys. Do you, do you guys find yourself keeping in touch with anybody you flew with? Not, not regularly, not continuously. But, uh, you know, there are reunions and get-togethers where there's an opportunity. But it's been quite a while for me. Yeah, I, I've seen Nikolai a couple of times. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let's see. Nikolai Budarin. Budarin, right. Budarin. Nikolai right. Budarin. Yeah, right. I was struggling to find that name again. Yeah. yeah, Nikolai. I've seen him a couple of times in Houston. Oh, have you? Have not seen any of the other ones, um, although we saw Vladimir right. in Warsaw. That's right. When we went there. Right. And, uh, and I, guess he's, I, th I guess he's still in the rotation. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So... What was the time frame like from this first decision uh, saying, you know, yes, this is uh, uh, in the spirit of detente and post-Cold War and all these sorts of things. We are going to dock the shuttle with Mir. From the point that decision was seriously taken to the mission, how long did that take? I think that was first formulated in 1992 that we were going to go dock with the Russian space station Mir, 1992. And then the, we did a close approach, uh, SCS-63, mm -hmm. did, did the near approach to the Mir space station, but didn't dock. Uh, that would have been, I think, the end of 1994. Four, right. 
And then we went there in June of 95. Correct, yep. So it was altogether two or three years to put it all together. Funny story, the docking day, June of 1995, the docking day was my 40th birthday, and the uh, some of the other crew members had brought an inflatable birthday cake, and <laughs> it was the morning of docking operations, which, you know, Hoot's running the show on the flight deck, and I'm supporting, and it's really busy. And all of a sudden, I hear this cry from the, the mid-deck, hey, get down here. What do you want me for? <laughs> and they start singing happy birthday on the mid-deck with a floating inflatable birthday cake. This was before the docking? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Several hours before. I, I understood. Yeah. yeah. Wow. The uh, where, Where's that cake now? Anybody know? Well, I have a picture of it. <laughs> yeah, we've got photos of it. Yeah, I don't know what became of that either. cake. That would be a real space <laughs> relic. <of> that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Note to self, watch eBay. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Inflatable space inflatable cake. Inflatable space cake. I'm surprised they let us bring something like that on there because the <laughs> safety guys at NASA, I wanted to bring a guitar yeah. to give to the Russians because on the Mir space station, we understood they had a guitar, but it was an old beat up piece of junk and I wanted to take them a new one. Well, the safety guys said, guitars, no, those are made out of wood. That's flammable. You can't take that in the cabin with you. Yeah, for launch, we're sitting on four and a half million gallons <laughs> of liquid <laughs> hydrogen and liquid oxygen, but you can't have a chunk of wood in the cabin yeah. with you. So true. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I think we worked it out, though, didn't we? I think somebody later on did take them a replacement yeah. guitar. I think we might have done it on either my 84 or 91 flight later. One of those two, I think we took them on. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Well, of course, Chris Hadfield brought uh, brought one on yeah. you know, one of his missions yeah. and yeah. Yeah. did some recording up there. But. Well, that was the funny thing for, for the U.S. You know, we hadn't done any space station length missions since Skylab, and, and that was very short-lived, right? But the Russians, part of their pride when we joined was... They were the, the king of the hill when it came to long-duration spaceflight in a space station. Um, our expertise was with you know rapid turnaround operations with a space shuttle and a variety of different mission objectives. So it was really neat to see those two cultures come together. And what we learned on the U.S. side was you really have to start to think about how do you make life in space resemble as much as you can life on Earth for the, you know, the good well-being of the folks that have to live there for a long period of time. So... Today on Space Station, you know, they can use cell phone kind of contacts with their friends and family all the time. We didn't have that in the beginning. Yeah. I remember when we were training at one point, we had a question for, for the Russians that were in space. And uh, who was it, uh, the Russian that was over there training with us, who had been with us for so much? Uh, Sergei Krikalev. Krikalev. Yeah. Sergei Krikalev. Yeah, yeah. He said, let's call them. Yeah. And we went to a telephone, went to a regular telephone there near the near the simulators, and he dialed the Russian Mir space station and talked to them. <laughs> we couldn't do that. We though. couldn't do that. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. I That's, never knew that. Yeah. Does anybody have the number for the Mir yeah. space station? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and as we talk about the, the shuttle... Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask was, what? It, and I, I always like to ask this whenever I, I can of our guests, is what was your first impression the first time you got up close to it and got to really look it over? The mirror itself, you mean? The, no, the, the shuttle itself. Oh, the shuttle itself. Yeah. Well? Well, it's awe-inspiring. Definitely awe-inspiring. First time I ever saw one of the shuttles was when Columbia was in California, 
uh, before we had moved it to the Cape, before its first launch, and it was up in one of the high bays out at Palmdale. Mm. And, uh, oh, it's so impressive to see it. It, uh, it was unlike any other spacecraft before. For sure. And it, it, this isn't my first memory, but first time I saw one on the launch pad in the vertical where we got up literally under the main engine bells and looked up. When it's in the vertical, it just is so massive. Really impressive machine. Yeah. Yeah. And then the first time you saw it, fueled. Yeah. <laughs> and ready to launch where it's got liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen in the tank. And it's venting some of that off so it's hissing, it's creaking, it's clanking. You look at it and you said, oh, my gosh, this thing is alive. Alive, exactly. And it was living and breathing. And that's, that's impressive to see it on launch morning. really is. Se- seven million pounds of thrust lift in a five million pound you know, vehicle off the ground is a lot of massive energy. So speaking of, of launch and launch configuration, um, Space nerd in me has to has to ask this question: What's it like riding that thing into space? I mean, what's what's launch like? Pretty darn spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> um, golly, you know, Charlie and I were both pilot astronauts, and of course, if there are malfunctions, the commander and the pilot are the ones that are going to have mm-hmm. to manage it during launch, and it's only eight and a half minutes long. And there are some malfunctions, like a navigation error. If you don't correct it within 10 seconds, you're out of control. And that would be the end of the vehicle. So things can be a little bit tense. We trained for disasters in the simulator. And I'll never forget my first launch. You know, I'm sitting there keyed to jump on the switches and fix things and execute the malfunction procedures. And we blasted all the way to launch, and we got to cut off, and we hadn't had any problems at all. And I got this gigantic smile on my face. I said, wow, that was fun. Let's go back and do that again. So I did. So you did. Remember, we had the one GPC switch procedure that if we needed to stop everything right before liftoff, we could throw that thing to off, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Because once you get inside of 31 seconds, it went on internal control and it was going to go. And if we needed to do something, that was our, our way out. But uh, if you asked the question what it's like, what it feels like if you were to take the chair you're sitting in and tip it over on the floor and lay in it with your back to the floor, imagine a giant hand just reaching in and accelerating you through the ceiling. But that push continues for eight and a half minutes. It's just a relentless push in the back. Very it's, impressive. It's, it's, it resembles a catapult launch off an aircraft carrier. And, uh, oh, that's right, you never had any of those. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Go. <laughs> it resembles... Can you imagine? Just think about this. You have to take an airplane on a boat to go fly? <laughs> <laughs> Where I flew, we had golf courses on the base. You know, we'd go fly a couple times and then go play golf. I mean, I don't get what these Navy guys saw in that. I just... Yeah, they yeah they go fly a fam flight in the morning and then hit the golf course and then hit the officers club in the exactly. evening. Yeah, it exactly. Was, it and was, we were flying just like you guys. It and was then home not, in your own bed every night. Yeah. Yeah. It was not like that aboard you know, an I, aircraft carrier. I spent an evening on the Carl Vinson as an orientation, and all night long you could hear the, the hissing and the steam you know machinery going and 
The airplane's banging on the deck, and it's like, God, how does anybody ever sleep in this thing? You don't. Yeah, you don't. Sleep is at a real premium aboard an aircraft carrier. So, so you you were forgiven if you went and took a little short nap because yeah. otherwise you never got enough sleep. But the launch, golly, you know, the catapult shot on the carrier was about three and a half to four Gs, uh, but it only lasted for about three seconds. And then, like Charlie mentioned, it's eight and a half minutes of acceleration. And we'd go from standing still to orbital speed, 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half minutes. And so the average was over 2,000 miles an hour per minute. So it's exciting. Wow. Definitely. And, and what's the uh, what's the G-load like for the, the acceleration piece of it? Well, it, it peaks at three Gs and then backs off when the boosters separate. And then it peaks again close to, to engine cutoff at eight and a half minutes. It's, it's not... You know, like flying a fighter where you're nine Gs and it stays there for eight and a half minutes. It's relatively mild. The difference is it's pushing you through the chest in the back, not through your seat, because you're laying on your back and it's pushing you from the back end. But it, it and it, you know, as it gets to three Gs, it feels like a heavy heaviness on your chest. It it's difficult to breathe in the end there because it's pushing so hard and it's so continuous. But it's not that, like he said, on a catapult, it's four Gs for a few seconds. Wow. So the uh, the first docking mission to Mir, uh, you guys flew together. Did you have another mission together after that? No. No, no that okay. wound up being he, my He my punted last me to trip. the curb after that. Well, no. <laughs> yeah, after flying with Charlie, I said, I'm not coming back for that again. No, no I'll tell you what. When I flew with Charlie, and I've actually... I didn't tell him this story right away. Right after we landed, I was talking to one of the other crew members, Ellen Baker. Dr. Ellen Baker. And I told her, I said, you know what? After working with Charlie like this, I'll be really surprised if he isn't the first Air Force chief astronaut. I said, someday he's going to be the chief astronaut. Well, that just proved that I can predict the future <laughs> because, indeed, he was. He was the chief astronaut. Oh, that's really so kind. But I didn't realize you were the first Air Force chief astronaut. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Why did that take so long? Um, we, you know, we prepare well, <laughs> take our time, get ready. <laughs> huh, I'd put it a little differently. We have never. Can we, uh, <laughs> can we move along here? <laughs> sure. No, uh, Charlie was so outstanding that I, that's what I predicted. I said, I'll be surprised if he is not the chief astronaut someday. And sure enough. Sure enough, he was. Wow. And that wasn't long after you retired. There, were, there was, I, I believe, at least one person in between your tenures? Uh, or was it more than that? As there, there, yes, there was. As uh, a Bob permanent, Cabana. Bob Cabana. Bob Cabana. We had some acting astronaut chiefs in between, but Bob was the, the permanent that was between the two of us. Okay. Yeah. And then I think he was only there, what, two or three years, and then, yeah. then it was you. Yeah. I started in it in 98. 98. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just a couple of years. Yeah. So, Yeah. I, like I say, I, I'm, well, I'm not taking credit with predicting that, but Charlie was that good that I well, said. Well, you should take some credit for the mentorship, you know, the, the going through that whole exercise with the Russians. And I, I recall in the very beginning when we started this that we were going to have to turn NASA into somewhat of a State Department as well as a technical agency because of the, the difficulty of working in a foreign language with our counterparts on a what's not been done before kind of basis, right? So um, that mission really set the stage for everything we've done right up through today in terms of 
establishing the relationships and making the technical work and all that stuff. And I got to learn from the best here. You know, we ought to talk about your docking and how precise that was. Oh. <laughs> I mean, my gosh, talk well, about nailing it. <laughs> I don't talk about my docking. I talk about our docking yeah, okay. because I, I picked a really talented crew for this mission. The only <clears throat> difference was I wasn't going to be the commander. But Charlie Precord is the pilot and uh, Greg Harbaugh mm-hmm. as a uh, mission specialist, too. And we did that docking. It was a it was a team effort every bit of the way. And it did come off very, very well. It really did. But we had trained on it sufficiently. I think I think we did nearly 100 dockings in the simulators. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old expression is, gee, the, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, you mentioned the simulator on the Russian side, really more of a, of a mock-up. Uh, did you come back to the U.S., and, and was there a, a more uh, high-tech simulation uh, set up for you to practice on on the U.S. side? Yes. Well, yeah. And our simulator obviously was was a whole bunch higher technology. Sure. Now, we did train in their Soyuz simulator. Mm-hmm. We did. And and what was interesting about flying the Soyuz was there there wasn't much to see. No. <laughs> the crew kind of sits there and, you know, anytime there's a burn, uh, a, a burn of your rocket motors, we had to enable it and we had to consent for it to go. We had to hit execute. For it to execute it, the Soyuz just does it all on itself, and there's no countdown clock. You don't know when it's coming. Yeah, that's true. They believe a lot in automation. I even remember talking to another cosmonaut later that he had flown their version of a Harrier and it ejected him with him not voting. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those low altitude hover engine failures, yeah. and he probably would have chosen to, but it just did it for him. Can you imagine? Oh I don't think gosh. we'd build an airplane like that. No, I don't think we ever have one that has automatic ejection seats. I think the Air yeah. Force has those. But, <laughs> oh, my gosh. But not yeah, the we, Navy. We, wow. I was going to say, I thought we inherited them from the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just buy lots of Navy airplanes, yeah. like the F-4 Phantom, the yeah. A-7 oh, Corsa. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> well, a little bit ago, you, you mentioned that uh, the docking was a team effort. Um, and I know that you know we've we've had a uh, past astronauts on uh, who mentioned that items like the Apollo like missions like the Apollo missions were a culmination of over four hundred thousand people. Was there that kind of support and maybe like a like a team atmosphere around shuttle? Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, we're. We would be the lucky seven of us that got to actually do the mission, but we had a training team assigned to us uh, of about twice that many people that saw us through all the simulators, and I tell you, their hearts and souls went with us when we went to fly, and that was just our training team. Then you had all the rest of the NASA organization that got everything put together and everything ready for us to go to space. So we we got to do the fun part. They did a lot of the drudgery and a lot of the work, and we owed everything to all of those people. Yeah, when you ask about the simulators, if you think about it, what we did in Russia was to learn what was on their side of the interface, down to their interface. And then um, because the mechanism that was added to our docking port to mate with them was also theirs. It had to be physically shipped to Downey out in Los Angeles, where it was assembled in on the floor of the fa- factory there. And our crew went out, and the first time we got to really interface with the, the hardware, 
that was going to get mounted into the shuttle was actually where the engineers and technicians of our contractors were actually building it up and taking the Russian mechanism, adding it to the U.S. hardware. And then, um, so that was a simulation of, a, of sorts where we were interfacing with the hardware, but then we come back to Houston, and now we're in our own shuttle simulators that have been modified to do this docking procedure, doing some really high-fidelity operational procedures to go right through the whole docking process, if that wow. makes sense to you. So it was very complex with thousands of people involved. Now, how many times uh, did one of our shuttles dock with Mir? Uh, we did seven. We did seven, yeah. We did uh, the first one with Hoot, and then I was lucky enough to do the middle of the seven on STS-84 uh, with Eileen Collins, and then STS-91 was the last one. Um, so we had a total of seven. So what was it like uh, around NASA after, you know, number one, we prove that uh, that the shuttle can dock with the station, and obviously the first mission, clearly a resounding success. Um, at what point did uh, did you start hearing about, or, or was it under, well underway already, uh, plans for a tr- the truly international space station, the follow-on to Mir? Mm-hmm. Yes, that had been underway, golly, since 1984. Wow, 1984 was when we first said, okay, we're going to build an American space station. And back then, it had been named Freedom, Space Station Freedom. And unfortunately, I think it got itself way too bogged down in bureaucracy and cost overrun and all those kinds of things and was working its way to where it was going to be unfeasible to do. And so in uh, about 1992 or 1993, uh, it was decided to redesign it. And the thing that really saved the space station program was involving the Russians because it did give us a way to reduce tensions between us and Russia. And politically, that became a very good thing to do. And the International Space Station wound up being what we really wanted. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I I remember as a kid, uh, you know, you mentioned the 80s. That seems so far back, but I, I remember seeing concept drawings when the shuttle was first coming online of of space stations sort of built out of discarded center fuel tanks mm-hmm. and and things like that um it, nothing really ever came of that concept correct we always just got rid of the tanks and let them go but um but that's uh, that's amazing that there is that direct i wouldn't have thought of that as having such a direct lineage of more early 80s is just sort of pie in the sky we could do this we could do that and then later we get serious but it sounds like it was just well, the, Slow and steady the, the building blocks but. were always um, the concept to get to permanent you know, presence on the moon and eventually to Mars was we needed more time and space than the shorter shuttle mission. So the station was always contemplated as a great intermediate step to those longer duration missions to moon and Mars. Um, how we were able to get a station evolved dramatically, like you said, there were concepts with the tanks. Having the internationals involved, everybody brought a piece that made it politically very popular for a lot of different reasons to our benefit. Um, and, it, and Mir was called Phase One uh, because it was already envisioned that there was going to be an international space station involving these partners, the Europeans, the Russians, Japanese, uh, Canadians, and ourselves. And we even had Brazil in there for a while. But um, that was always envisioned, and that's why we called it Phase One, is this is a way to learn to work 
a shuttle together with a space station. And the space station originally was designed around a long-term presence of shuttle as the uh, supplier, if you will, of, of its existence. And of course, we had to adjust from that when we lost shuttle after Columbia. But um, that whole thing evolved from the 80s, like Hoot said. Wow. Well, as we talk about duration and space, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure I asked you both was, what's it like to be up there zero gravity for for a period of time, for you know, extended a true extended time, period? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think neither of us stayed there for a long time. Uh, ten days. My longest was ten days. Yeah, mine too. My longest mission was ten days, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Weightlessness is really great because you can hover in midair. And you can fly. Well, you have to. You fly everywhere you go. We don't wear <laughs> shoes. We just wear socks up there because you don't need shoes. You're not walking anywhere. And so it's it's wonderful. Yeah, I marveled at the longer duration guys like Krikalev. They they really learned how to maneuver with, with in weightlessness. You know, there's the body has to adjust to it all, and they were very very adept at it. After a, a ten day flight, what's your readjustment period like when you come back to one G? My, mine was, uh, it was easier every single time I flew. Uh, my first mission, I remember I had a little bit of, uh, oh golly, lack of, lack of equilibrium. If I leaned my head to the side, I'd fall over for about three hours after we got back. I had to focus on keeping my head straight up and down for several hours. But by the final mission I flew, I remember standing there in, in the orange suit, in our spacesuit, on the uh, crew vehicle going back to the crew quarters, jumping up and down mm-hmm. uh, because it got easier every time. The body kind of remembers the insult as an expression that doctors use all the time. <laughs> and so it got easier every time. Uh, same for me. And I think that is true for a lot of folks. I, I felt after the first mission, when I laid down to sleep at night, like I, my body was going to go through the mattress. I felt so heavy. But we all had a different experience that way. But it was a longer adjustment for sure after the first flight. And the last flight, it was like I never left almost. It seemed. Yeah. Yeah. It got easier every time. Charlie, was it you that told me the story about uh, you, you would drop silverware and things because you would... Well, a good friend of ours, Rich Clifford, after his first flight, got up in the middle of the night to go get you know a glass of water or drink a juice or something, and he had to move the milk, and he pulled it out of the refrigerator, thought he was still in space, so he let go of it, thinking it would just float, <laughs> and it splashed all over the kitchen floor. <laughs> At least he... I mean, you've got a, a wonderful excuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, if yeah, I go home... Cu- for a couple of days, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I go home and do that, you know, it's honey, we need to talk. Yeah. But, you know, if you do that, oh, sorry, astronaut, you know, <laughs> excuse me, been in space. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, so uh, both of you guys have, uh, in addition to the, the considerable careers at, at NASA, uh, you're both heavily involved in aviation privately. We sort of mentioned that a little bit at the beginning, um, but you both, uh, but you've both flown a lot over the years. Uh, Charlie, you're a home builder. Mm-hmm. Hoot is too, actually. Excellent. So yeah. let's, let's talk about that side of it a little bit too. And then uh, Hoot, I want to hear a little bit more about, uh, I, I've been seeing you getting even more attention lately as a, a model builder. Oh, golly. Yes. Well, I've, I've, been involved in uh, light planes all my life. In fact, learned to fly. Uh, my dad was my teacher, and he had been an aeronautical engineer and a test pilot, and I learned how to fly from him. He taught me. And so been flying light airplanes 
oh golly, our first memory is when I was five years old flying in a Piper Cub with my dad. And so I've been doing that all my life and, and still am. I, I, own, I own a Bonanza and I have a uh, Formula One home built racing plane that, uh, that I'm still flying. And then the models, golly, yes, I'm heavily into radio controlled models. I really like the electric ducted fan jets. And uh, so I have uh, I have a radio controlled F4 Phantom that I flew in the Navy. Not the not the radio controlled one. I have a <laughs> I flew an F4 Phantom in the Navy. I mean that Air Force airplane the Navy had to adopt because they couldn't come up with their own. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait a minute now. Who who developed the F4 Phantom? <laughs> we'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a uh, an F14 radio controlled model as well. Now, didn't I see a, a picture, and I hope I'm not uh, wrong about this, but didn't uh, I saw a picture of you with a, a tail sitter? Yeah. Uh, con- was it a Pogo? The or? Convair XF, v- oh, yeah. XFY1 Pogo. Yes. Yeah, I built that from scratch, and it's a, it's a limited success in terms of flying. It has flown. It has hovered on a very short tether. So I've got enough power. I'm just not certain I have enough flight control to free fly it. But it has enough power that it lifted off and hovered uh, on about two-thirds throttle. Wow. So it's got plenty of power. That's terrific. Uh, so, Charlie, what about, uh, what about you? What do you so, fly yeah, these days? I, I built a, a very easy um, many, many moons ago. And uh, we actually have a, a formation flight. We got some nice pictures with Hoot and a Cassett. And um, today the very easy's here in the home builder's hangar is the Aviore. Uh, aircraft, I guess we'd call it, right? Well, right. We, we brought Stanley out to uh, to kind of christen the presence of a, a superhero, what do you call him, uh, for us aviation folks. Absolutely. And uh, Avior is the character's name. And in the magazine, we have, what is it, every three months we put out a... Uh, three times a year. Three times uh, a, three year, yeah. a year. So sometimes it's so three months. It was great to have Stanley here to, to, to christen that character for us. Um, so we dolled up the my very easy to to be Avior's airplane. Um, so today I, I you know I got into business flying, so I fly a Citation and uh, enjoy that like crazy. It's just a really capable. We machine. just signed it. Yeah, yeah I was saying now right before we started recording. Yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> I really do need to get a new paint job. Yeah. <laughs> right before we started recording for that, we uh, Hoot showed us a, a picture of uh, him, uh, quote unquote, autographing your airplane. <laughs> Is that right, marker? Is that right? And. Uh, um, we got a good laugh out of it. It was a little bit of a nervous laugh. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to use turpentine to get his signature off. So. This will be my last green dot. So yes, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. It's been, yeah. We've all had a good run, yes, right? Yeah, it's been a good Yeah, run. we posted it as if I was actually signing his airplane with an indelible Sharpie pen. And I texted him the photo and said, I just autographed your airplane. So I guess the, my next question is, how are you going to get him back? Get him back? Yeah, or or it, maybe the better question is: Is it possible to no, get no, him back? No, no, because it, I'm no. really picking up on a theme we, here. We have we have a saying: It never ends, or it never quits. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It never has, and it never will. <laughs> no. Well, Hood, I want to make sure I get to ask you a couple questions, uh, or at least one question about uh, your air racing career. You you've uh, raced at Reno. Uh, you've won Reno. Um, and you've raced a few different aircraft, Sea Fury. You've uh, flown a Mustang. Um, it, that's got to be uh, that's got to be a lot of fun to race something out at Reno. Oh golly, that had been a dream of mine all my life. I remember as a 
teenager being fascinated with racing airplanes, and part of the reason is they're so sleek and good-looking, and that's why they go so fast. I had always wanted to be an air racer, and so many, many years as an astronaut, I'd get asked the question, okay, you, you got to fly off aircraft carriers, you've been a test pilot, you get to fly space shuttles. Is there something in the world of aviation that you haven't done that you'd like to do? It was always, I'd like to race the unlimited class at Reno. And I got to do that all together for 14 years. And culminating the very last year I raced in winning the unlimited championship. So that was a big thrill. Wow, that's spectacular. Chris, we had a couple, one or two specific questions that had come in from uh, from an avid listener and air racing fan. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, uh, we had a question from Connor who wanted to know, uh, you've raced a, a, a stock Sea Fury uh, and a, uh, a highly modified one. Uh, I guess, what was some of the noticeable uh, difference in characteristics between the two aircraft? The stock Sea Fury actually wasn't totally stock. We had done quite a bit of modification on it to make it go faster because the first year I raced it, this was the one called Riff Raff. Uh, I think my average speed was 388 miles an hour the first year that I raced it. And then the final year that I raced it, I think 440 miles an hour. So over the years, we increased the speed quite a bit. That was an easier airplane to operate than the real fast one that I raced for four years, uh, race number 232. And I flew it four different years, and the one year that the engine didn't blow up, I got second place overall. The other three years, I landed it with a damaged engine or a totally inoperative engine, and it was it was that was a little bit of a nervous airplane because the cooling system for the oil was not an air oil cooler; it was a water methanol bath behind my cockpit in the aft fuselage where you boiled water methanol, and the oil cooler was immersed in that thing. So it didn't have as much drag. So it was by far the fastest Sea Fury that ever raced Reno. That was race number 232. But if you developed a little tiny leak in the oil cooler, now you formed a layer of oil on top of the water bath that was back there, and it didn't evaporate anymore. So all of a sudden, your temperatures go sky high. So it was a little more nervous to fly that airplane. Wow. Uh, well, we just have a couple of minutes left, so um, I wonder if I could uh, ask each of you the the same question, um, and just uh, off the top of your head, when you look at the space program and uh, and where we are now, both both in the U.S. and internationally, uh, start with you, Charlie. What what's the next big thing? Uh, the uh, the push is to establish permanent presence on the moon as opposed to the short duration that we flew back in Apollo. And I always like to look at the whole program as a continuum. It's taken uh, since the Mercury days to think about the incremental steps that we make, but Mercury was all about could we put a person into space and bring them back safely. Gemini was, now that we've learned that, can we do things productive? So we learned in Gemini how to do orbit maneuvers, how to do dockings, separate from dockings, and so forth, That things that would be needed for you know, reasonable operations. And then Apollo was about getting to the moon and back. And then we recognized that if we're going to stay out there, we got to learn a whole lot more. And we needed a shuttle that could take heavy stuff to orbit. And on top of the shuttle, we're going to need a space station. 
from which we can learn to really live in space, not just be there for short periods of time. So you think about these building blocks, right? And they're all part of the dream to be able to, to go and permanently inhabit a place like Moon or Mars. Think like the Antarctic uh, with the McMurdo station there where we send people now regularly. Even tourists can go to McMurdo and, and see what Antarctica is all about. So that's, that's a, it's a natural human tendency to think in those kinds of steps of where we want to go and evolve. So I think where we're headed is heavy lift and uh, accompanying modernized systems that allow us uh, to put the right energy systems on the surface of the moon to support long duration inhabitant uh, activities there. So Wow. For either of you, uh, long-term presence on the moon, is that going to come before a Mars landing? A human Mars landing? Yes. Yeah. The plan is go learn how to live and operate on the moon where we're only a couple of days away if we needed to do a rescue or something of that sort. Whereas on on the Mars surface, you're possibly eight months away from home. And so there's a whole lot more lead time. So let's learn how to do it before we put people on Mars. The next uh, step should be this coming February of 2022, the SLS rocket, the Space Launch System rocket, which is the largest rocket ever, uh, is due to launch in February. And that's what enables us to be able to send a mission to the moon, back to the moon, and is going to enable us to go on to Mars as well. So that's what we're looking forward to. It's uh, it's terrific to live in exciting times and to see uh, see development continuing and accelerating. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, boy, thank you both so much for taking some time to join us. Uh, as we're recording this, I need to point out it is December 17th. And uh, you two are in town uh, to speak at our annual Wright Brothers uh, Banquet. When this episode is released, that'll be a couple weeks in the past. uh, But by that time, we should have a video of the presentation up that people can watch as well. But I have to say, uh, sitting here thinking of 118 years uh, of Wright Brothers powered flight to go from uh, to go from the Wright Flyer to the moon in 66 years and then to hear about uh, your careers coming and right on the heels of that uh, is staggering. Truly inspiring. So thank you both again. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. And certainly looking uh, looking forward to that presentation. Uh, and speaking of thanks, uh, grateful as always to everyone out there for listening. We really appreciate the great reviews we get on iTunes and wherever else you consume your podcasts. You can always leave comments uh, on our blog at inspire.ea.org. Each episode has its own landing page and a place to leave comments. You can email us at feedback at ea.org. And uh, it's, uh, it's only because we get good feedback that we're able to continue doing these episodes. So we're grateful for it. And we appreciate it. Keep the feedback coming, and we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.